So, welcome to another of the um, self-service pub conversations at the Lamp Tavern, um, series supported by Arts Council, Creative Alliance and UCE. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> um, full details of the series, uh, past and present speakers on the, the website www.pubconversations.co.uk. Today's speakers are Becky Shaw and Stephen Eastwood, and I think they're going to start off with an introduction, so just let you get on with it. Shall I go first as the invitor? Hello. <laughs> I'm Becky and that's Stephen. We thought we'd talk about our bollocks tonight. We thought that'd be really different. Um, I, I met Stephen. We, well, we can't actually remember when we met. We remember when we met, but we can't remember why we met. Yeah. But um, we can remember that we met because of something. This film I'm yeah. going to show a clip from, but we can't remember how, how that happened. You came into contact with that film. No. So. Which says something about where that film has gone. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't know, or about me and my memory. Right. But um, I, I, yeah, I've liked Stephen's work for a very long time, and so it was really great chance to kind of have a further conversation and we found that we've got all these although our work's really really different in some ways we've got these really strange overlapping interests and I've actually never found another artist who has so many similar interests but in such a different form and so it's and who operates in a slightly different world so I find that really really fascinating um I've been making work uh, for about um, 15 years probably and I make work in a kind of social field and I generally work to commission and they're often public commissions like hospitals, schools where there's a sense of well there's a question of public good but of late I've started to try and work in c- commercial sectors like I'm trying to I'm trying to make a work for Topshop at the moment so there's all sort of questions about how you, access, how you access these sort of things um, and the works are all really, really different because they're always commissioned by different people. Um, and so Steve and I just thought we'd show one piece of work and try and use that each and try and use that as a basis of a conversation and try and connect up some of our ideas, but who knows where it will go. Um, the thing that I thought I'd show you is a, is a... It's not a new work. It was started about two years ago, um, but my work slowed down a little bit because I've, I've been off... Sort of having a child, um, but this work was started pre that, and it's 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 a real puzzle to me piece of work, and it, it's concluded, but it's not concluded, and it's it's called Getting Real, um, and it was made in Sheffield, and Matt and Cheryl saw the beginning of this work, and I was commissioned as part of the Spectator Tea Festival, which came out of Sheffield's kind of artist-led sector. Um, and I wanted to work I don't know if you remember but Gavin Wade wrote this text for Spectator Tea some of you will know and it was about this character who kind of hated art and wanted to destroy art and I, I started to think about what would happen if, if Tony T this character went off to university and I went through all Sheffield Hallam's courses and I found this course called Forensic Engineering and apart from the fact I started to think about Quincy and all sorts of romantic things and CSI, I, I kind of was really fascinated about what forensic engineering might, might be. And also what forensic engineering might be in a city like Sheffield, which has got such a tradition of engineering and heavy metal works and, you know, cookery. And so I, I sort of spent time with, with forensic engineering. And normally I'm invited in to context, but in this chunk, in this, normally I get a commission from a place and they say, come and spend some time with us. But I had to kind of push to get in this place, which is quite, quite different, and it sort of changed the, the, the kind of onus of what I did. But as you can see, it's one of these classic kind of probably 50s, 60s university buildings with like a labyrinth of corridors and it stinks and it's, there's no windows it's just this really strange atmosphere where loads of people are in rooms milling bits of metal and it it sort of plays into all my sort of it's strange because that's what we imagine artists might do that they might make stuff and I don't really make stuff and I think this question of what it is to make things or not make things sort of haunts this work and about the fact that Britain used to make things and that we think that Britain doesn't make things anymore Um, so um, I spent time with the students um, and they're sort of 
this is a materials analysis course. And it's funny because in all of this, the teachers felt really comfortable hearing about material structure because every, all the teachers remind me of my dad. And while that's funny and it's sort of a personal thing, it's also about this sort of, you know, my dad was part of that. My, I'm actually from, I'm from Dudley and my dad was part of that kind of um, chemical industry of manufacturing. And so there's this sense of paternal making that sort of exists in this. In this. Um, but basically the thing that caught my attention um, was this thing and it's, um, it's the bottom of a vodka bottle mould and it's fractured in two with this almost cartoonish smash and this was a piece of it's, it's this, these things that come into the students possession are given by companies or they're found on the road by the tutor and they're, they're broken and their, their course tells them that they have to analyse broken things and tell them what happened to them so rather than trying to construct to imagine and build like engineers do mm. they get broken things and they find out what happened to them um, so it's backward engineering and this thing is literally the bottom of a mould and you have two sides and glass gets blown in at pressure and this was quite a famous brand I think it was Smirnoff but it's fractured, um, and students' job is to find out why it's fractured. So they subject it to this analysis. Um, they take bits off. They take, you know, they damage it further. They take samples off. Um, they analyse it under the microscope. They look into its structure to try and find out what happened. And you know, they're using an electron scanning microscope. So you're sort of in the land of fiction, really. In that, who knows what happens in that machine? It fires like, ox like atoms and oxygen and it makes pictures. It's like an imaginary, it's making this picture of an interior that we only have to, we have to believe is true. And then I decided I wanted to copy this object. And I don't really know why. It was a really sort of baseline hunch. And I think that's one of the things that Stephen and I were talking about on the train that you think that when you work to commission or you work in kind of public sector that you work somehow less on hunch or intuition but you don't, you know, there's still that I want to copy this object and I have no idea why but it feels like the right thing to do and so I asked the course lead, the course tutor how, how do I copy this object and he kind of didn't really want that much to do with me but he kind of said why don't you go in there, metrology and this is, a play, this is the science of measuring metrology and this is the domain of the measurer and the man who works in here is called Mac and Mac, Mac has been an engineer since time immemorial and now he's employed as a technician he was a railway engineer and Mac, Mac is employed um, to help the students but he's also employed to generate £30,000 worth of revenue for the university and Mac confessed to me that using this rapid prototyping technology um, he's never been trained to operate it um, he gets things to copy from the motoring industry and they say can you make an accurate copy of this using rapid prototyping and Matt confessed to me that he never actually made an accurate copy <laughs> even though this has gone back but there's this sort of sense of you know, the craziness of education and the fact that learning and, and um, well, the, the core values of education are not in place in a university anymore and this poor guy has been pressured to do things that he was never trained to do um, and so we decided we would copy my object using this technology knowing so, that it would change knowing that it wouldn't work because Mac didn't know how to use the machine <laughs> so there's this sense of trying to in a way copying this thing that was already broken but f trying to fold the, the, the social reality of the university back into the object mm and not really knowing I don't really make objects anymore or I haven't for a long time I make social processes in social situations but knowing that this object was really important to me and trying to think how you can have a social process happen and an object at the same time and what, how the two things fit together and so we went through this whole process of trying to scan this thing and there were hours and hours and hours and then the net, you, you know, you make photographs and you try and weld them together digitally but this thing was just blasted with holes and then you know, they're, they're like caves, they're like empty spaces that he was trying to knit together and then in the end he said, I know, why don't we use the metrology machine? which is what engineers use and he, he welded together the scans using a metrology machine that takes accurate measurements in real life and um, then he tried to fit them to the original um, um, to the nets 
and then and then some other blokes got involved who tried to form it using kind of three dimensional using CAD techniques, um, and in the end it was rapid prototyped. But you get this thing that's been passed through this whole system of of um, problems. Hmm. Um, and of course you get a copy of an object that's broken but this object isn't broken this object is perfect it's never been broken but also on the surface of it this is just as it comes out the prototype you know it blasts resin in layers and, and on the surface of it it's like this diagram it's like the CAD drawing is somehow recorded on the surface of the object as though it's got you know cross hatches on it I don't know why and then the next stage is to um, is to get the object cast again by Sheffield Hallam but to return it to the students and ask them to analyse it using the same techniques I want to know what's wrong with it so they're going to analyse it and then in theory um, there's a cycle there um, a cycle of endless return whereby the students this year will analyse it and I don't know on what grounds they'll analyse it you know, because it's not actually broken but I want them to analyse it and then their report then their report will perhaps be the work but then I'm hoping that I can sell that existing object and use it to make the next cycle happen whereby the object that the students have analysed so it's really complicated the object that the students have analysed and they'll again have sliced off bits will again be copied by SHU and again be analysed by the students and in theory this object could circulate in and out of the, the university is it declared to the students as a counterfeit no it's just an object that they're going to copy and it's a different cohort of students every right. year because it takes me a long time to get this thing done because the university is really slow I can only go at their pace right. um, so again this cycle of analysis happens <coughs> but the questions and you know I don't know what it is I'm showing you they're not documents this isn't a documentation this is kind of the work as it only exists at the moment but then I'm left with the question you know, what, what is the work the object is the work but it also isn't you know, is the work actually a text is it just a story that I tell you um, but the object seems more important than that but I'm not going to just put it in a gallery and show it so there's this sort of problem about, about how you squeeze back together the relationship between objects and people that very easily comes apart we forget how connected they are um, but it's a, it's a kind of art problem as well about the kind of dialogue about social practices or non-material practices and material practices and how they might inhabit together um, Can I ask you something? Yeah Because you talked about this idea of um, intuition and the, whether or not it's a valid thing to, to make an intuitive act on the back of substantial commission funding uh, do you, was there any kind of um, prerequisite within the funding to have an object outcome? Not an object, not at all. So they were happy no. for a social process oh, to be absolutely. an art process? Absolutely, there's no pressure. But it, I think it's a more personal question than that because yeah. I, I think I, I was a sculptor and I actually think all the work I've made that's happened in the social realm is all about material and objects. Right. And that I'm, I suppose I'm coming clean, <laughs> but it leaves me with a new set of problems because I want my cake and eat it. But no, they're, they're not. In this case, it was a residency, so they're, they're not. They're not funders' pressures. They're my right. pressures. Right. They're internal pressures, um, which is quite interesting because that, that's why that object's cracked. It turns out it cracked from uh, the internal pressure of oxygen being folded into oh, the really? original because someone left the door open when it was cast. But of course there's an, there's an enormous pressure on the student to solve something which has no mystery. Uh, absolutely. In a way. I know. It's a, you know, it could be like a PhD project. What, what broke this? Yeah. Because there isn't a break. And what does break mean? Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, there is nothing broken in the end. Do you think, that's just occurred to me, that there's something deeply cynical about it? Because you, you started off by saying that the universities don't have core kind of like values of like using skills correctly in their workplace and this poor guy is having to work to commercial clients without having the expertise. Do you think that the, the, the result of this process is to say some of these students are wasting their time? Because that, to, to give them a, an object... On the one hand, it's, it's mysterious <coughs> yeah. and it's enticing. Yeah. On the other hand, it's, that, it's yeah. actually saying... You're wasting your You're time. You're wasting time. Maybe it does. I mean, it's interesting because it's a really interesting question about 
how much you absorb when you're working in those contexts because you can intend to do something that's, you know, I actually feel quite positive about education. I think everyone should be educated. I think, I think that's a right, you know, and a really, really good education. So I don't think they're wasting their time. But it's really interesting if actually, as a subtext, from being in that environment, I kind of perhaps think they are because things are so bad there. Right. Um, so perhaps it's absorbed a bit of a bit of, you know, I've absorbed a bit of the sense of what it is like to be there and to see what's going on. Mm. Um, but I kind of hope it isn't really cynical. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to feel that about their education. Um, I'd, I'd rather that, I would rather the work be seen more. Perhaps it's cynical about wider contexts of. of you know, late capitalism in the sense that the yeah, yeah. values that, that ought to be in place are eroded, like you know the kind of endless kind of um, um, capital being made out of education. I'd rather people saw it that way than rather perceived it as to say that their education per se was of no value. Yeah, I'd rather I'd people think more intelligently about, or you know, perhaps be more aware and more demanding of their education. Well, for me, the end of their forensic kind of uh, mystery. We're doing very well in there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think we did. The, uh, thank you. I was thinking that the end of the forensic mystery for them is the application of their of their practice as art. You know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't have an industrial function to put that research in to find out that the end of the trail of breadcrumbs is an artist. Yeah. It's not um, an industry that wants to know how to better manufacture, manufacture no, no. glass bottles to, to increase their productivity. At the end of that trail is an artist. And I suppose it's that question about what knowledge is for then. And right. that, you know, we had a conversation on the trainer about what art PhDs are and about... about um, you know, art production as a type of knowledge, then, yeah, and perhaps yeah. it's it's kind of. No, I don't want to sound too sort of loved up, but perhaps it's asking them to kind of think about. You know, I suppose it. I suppose it's keying in to. I suppose there's my belief tucked away in there that all intellectual activity is really powerful and really important and actually it doesn't really matter whether it's in engineering or whether it's in art if people are applying and thinking quite laterally mm. and with energy and commitment and perhaps that's what it's demanding them to do that they come up with a solution you know how are they going to imagine how to analyse this object right. you know it requires creativity of them doesn't it yeah absolutely I, I did a metallurgy degree and I had something oh, really? very, very similar <laughs> where we read that this whole bench full of objects that were broken in different ways oh, and I ended up with a cheese knife that snapped <laughs> but I mean you can look at it and go oh it snapped because it's rusty and it's rusted and there's this whole thing where you kind of know what the answer is but you have to kind of tell the narrative of how yes. that happened so it's not enough to tell well it rusted it broke you had to sort of like go water came in through the handle and then it's gathered there and then that reaction's happened and stuff like that so yeah there was this thing of having to like tell the story of it so oh that's yeah. really interesting because we've talked about you know the the dilemma of whether you have to tell the story or not with with the artwork well, yeah, because in a way we're privy to, we understand that object now. Yeah. We understand, you know, you've just cut across all of the investigation and given us the result. Yeah. So I wonder, that must be difficult for your particular process to know just what to reveal or whether Absolutely. you ent enter yeah. into those power relations of, of um, giving up misinformation. Yes. You know? Absolutely. And like, yeah, I mean. I mean, how did you declare yourself to the students? Because oh, you're in the room. There. I was there as an artist right. on a residency, and I was interested in forensic engineering. Right. And it became really difficult because the one there was one lad Owen who was the possessor of the object, and he took it home every night, and I wanted to have it for a little bit, so I had to have all these sort of <laughs> meetings with him at Sheffield Railway Station, where I took the object off him for two hours only, and kind of this sort of. No. And he must have just thought, you know, there's, this, dealing. there's this guy and he's living in the halls of residence, he's 21, and he's like, there's this woman and she just wants to keep taking this bloody broken object off me. And, you know, and I've just said, I'm, I'm, you know, investigating it with the equipment in there. You know, I'm doing the same as you. But, you know, and it was this thing about, because they hadn't asked me in in quite the same way, 
it was like I was this sort of like weird level of you know of nobody knows who you are and you don't quite fit um, and it's sorry a bit like the kind of you know you're, you're that gap in the middle between the broken bits you're kind of making that gap right um so where is it now, the copy? The, the copy is with um, the technician at SHU who promises me he's going to do um, a um, particular type of lost wax cast to make a perfect cast of it in a metal equivalent, so as close as possible they can do to the, the original metal. Um, but it got caught up in degree show. And that's the interesting thing. I panicked because I wanted it to return every year, and it's actually two years. But that's because of the time scale of the university. Oh, right. And it's like there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. But it's really interesting because I generally will have to develop and finish a work in like six months. I've never had this thing that kind of just But this is like along. a sort of... Um, this is a piece that would outlive you. Oh, I know. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, it's I like know. that John Cage cathedral piece you know that the chime every year for 500 years I haven't thought of that you know it really is because it has to really it's not going to play out for a long while because no, it's, no. It's, the changes are going to be imperceptible absolutely and but they should be yeah yeah yeah. and it's that question about how you know but that thing whole thing about how do you and we've talked you know we'll probably talk about this but that, that idea of distribution and dissemination you know I don't want to write an essay about this thing I could quite easily write an essay about it but that that's not the right thing and it's like I, I'm looking for the gap in dissemination for this kind of work you know just like this thing's cracked I'm looking for a way to get in a crack between dissemination routes I don't want to put it in a gallery solely although I'm interested in the object I don't want to write about it it's like, it's like it, maybe it has to I think actually that the, somebody made a point about selling the one because it's a ex- really expensive piece of work to do this because mm. the university want paying as well is that how do I keep funding this endless cycling and someone said you, you kind of sell the objects that come out of it yearly the ones that have already been analysed and that's a really interesting way to drive it but it still doesn't answer the question about how you communicate it after the moment yeah, I mean, it's uh, you've also got to deal with that object in some way, oh, you know, yeah. because once it's copied object, again, you know. it sort of it's it's it's, it's it, gone. Yeah, it's gone. It's folded so times, it's, just folded, and it's gone, and it's that moment's never going to be get. So it's always loaded. What again. you do with it? If yeah. it's still part of your process, do you throw yeah. it away? No, you know, no, it's, no. it's tricky to know what to do with it. Yeah, but it's that thing about the fact that times folded in all objects. You know, it is absolutely completely embedded in them, and you can't get it back. Right. You know, their objects are utterly inaccessible, and that I think that's, you know, it, again, it's got a really emotive human content because we can't reaccess our own past, we can't be there again. They're folded, they're gone, uh, they're lost. Apart but from I think it's memory. very interesting this idea of, of, of um, reproducing an object and the fact that this drinks manufacturer is still experiencing fissures and tears and imperfections in what would be a mechanised production oh, yeah. line a bloke left the door open it really was right that. and so there's something came in and caused yeah. a little bit of chaos yeah human error right yeah. right because things that's all things are they you know they're what people do there's nothing more sophisticated than that you made me Chats. think of a piece I know by a Czechoslovakian artist called Martin Zett you ever come, come across him he did this piece where he got the copy of Vertigo on VHS mm-hmm. and then copied it from tape to tape to another VHS tape and then he put the, the copied tape into the deck and copy that to another tape and he kept copying it and copying it and copying it until he lost the image and lost the sound and it would be vertigo it's right yeah, yeah of course vertigo, vertigo because yeah. it's all about the lost object yeah. and then exhibited I think it was 88 monitors with VHS decks oh, so you could, you could go from the perfect VHS down oh, to the lost amazing. image Martin Zett Martin Zett well worth looking at he's oh, quite yeah. yeah he's right up your street actually <laughs> but I mean that's what I mean it yeah. would take if, you're, if you've got unfortunately a two year Turn, up, turn around, yeah. You know. But also, there's problems about the university get wise. They're not going to let. Are they going to continually let me do it, or are they going to send me on different routes? Are they going to, you know, in all in, in a lot of the projects, I have this Kafka feeling, and I can't really <laughs> explain it. But I constantly, when I work with large institutions like this, I constantly feel like I'm in Kafka's The Trial. Really. In that there's something that's going how you on. Describe the corridor at the start. It is. It's like that. It's like labyrinthine. You don't know where you are. You don't know who you are. You don't know who's about to tell you to get lost. You don't know who's talking about you. You don't know who's already sussed you. You don't know if they think you've done something wrong already. 
and you sort of generally do feel like you've done something wrong. But we were talking about this on the train about um, trying to, in as unmannered or unselfconscious a way as possible, remain in a space where you're not quite in control, and yeah. you must court that to some extent yeah. because you could make yourself more institutionally yeah. recognised and give yourself more of a sense of belonging. But you, you seem to want to to not quite belong. Is that right? No, I'd really like to belong, but I want to do my work and belong. <laughs> right. And that hasn't... No. It doesn't often happen. No. Right. No, or, you know, it's difficult work. It doesn't, you know, you don't know, do you? Maybe it doesn't travel easily. Maybe it's no good. You know, there are lots of... Maybe it's not simple enough. There are lots of, you know, lots of possibilities, aren't there? But, uh, you know, you do the work you want to do, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Because you get that feeling of like, oh, I wonder what happens if I do this. You know, it's like you find a hot... A, a kind of line and you think that's a real space there that I can get in and it just feels really nice just to see what happens if you know it is but it's like, precarious that place yeah absolutely yeah, um, yeah and you know I don't see my I, I don't see myself as a particularly risk taking character but there's just something about I just think it's that thing about social life and there are there's lots in between the things that we recognise as, as everyday and normal. There's, there's lots of other ways to do things that get set, that kind of can get a sense of what else is there in our lives. I suppose it just gives you a kick as well. It's a buzz of seeing what will happen if I try to do this. And also knowing that people are generally smarter and more tolerant and more curious than you generally expect. Mm. And that they'll, they're, you know, like, like your man here, He's, you know, he's sort of. <laughs> why ever not? You know, people pay the money. They get, you know, they get what they ask. But they, you know, they're curious. Right, right. And I, I really, you know, in all the projects I've done, I've, I've never. Although there'll be things that, you know, might apparently seem hostile or difficult, I've never really had a bad relationship with any of these things ultimately, because people sort of, I don't know, recognise a spirit of endeavour or something. But do, what about the? The, the final outcome, if it's a book or speaking to other people about what you do, does that what, what has been the most satisfying outcome in terms of like, okay, that's done. Crikey. Because um, is it sad? Do, do you sometimes when you talk about a project like that, which is almost should remain undeclared, yeah. do you come away from talking about it and think, oh, I feel a bit like I'm just. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like. Do, just declared a secret or, or, or no it's not not, um, not really but I, I sort of <laughs> <laughs> you know you sort of think I've just weaved this ridiculous tale and people come away thinking well, what the fuck's I got to do that you know what I mean <laughs> like, where, what, where's the art in that you know there's all those kind of you know just because you work in a way that isn't you know, might be harder to grasp as art doesn't mean you don't have all those same concerns about it as other people might have. Mm. You know, so you kind of think, well, I've just told a story, but there wasn't any work in it. You know, that sort of thing about. That's a hard thing to overcome, isn't it? That's a sort of um, a sense of wanting to enter into a canon or have something yeah. to cherish and to pin you and to be recognisable. Yeah. Um, I really like cyclical things, so in some ways it makes sense to me that there isn't a, a kind of end point. But then that's really interesting because how do you how do you put out a cyclical thing in a concluded form? Yeah, it, and that's I, a, that's definitely because I think there's something that we share is this in this sort of sense of trying to hit your head against the impossible or in trying to do something which can't be done. Other yes, things emerge. Yes. Absolutely. Like I'm trying to do this thing at the moment where I want to get, um, it's not going to happen this time, but I'm trying to get a t-shirt that I bought in on a residency in, and I also started this in Sheffield, I bought it on a residency in Melbourne where I was really bored and really lonely, which I always am on residencies, and I always go shopping because I want that normalness. I bought this t-shirt that's got red Indian shapes on it that are pixelated, that a designer must have made in the 70s, and I've been redrawing the patterns but I've been drawing them on graph paper so they expand and I want to put them back onto the t-shirt so I want to make a print so it could be printed professionally but so it will only fit on one t-shirt but the shapes are bigger now but I want to get it I only want one t-shirt printed but I want it printed industrially so I want to push this thing backwards through the large scale fashion textiles printing business but I only want one 
That's, so the one, one option is that the whole ream of fabric has to travel through the entire machinery and it's like hundreds of yards that get whisked through but there'll only be enough ink to make one t-shirt or, or the printing press has to start and stop in a minute to do, you know, it has to like handle right. the time scale but you know, finding someone who will ever let me do that with their, you know, thousands of pounds livelihood worth of printing press but that's, it's that sort of sense of wanting to engage in these huge systems as a tiny small person yeah. just go you know, and there's actually no reason why not in theory no, and to also kind of completely um, to make that production line um, reflexive in a way so that it sort of grinds to a halt or that, or that yeah. it, turns, it turns around in its possibility and becomes it produces the absurd it yeah. doesn't produce anything functional Rational. it produces the yeah. absurd and I suppose this whole thing about you know capitalism being seen to be rational when it's actually really irrational because it doesn't do any of us much good. So to kind of do something really irrational. <laughs> and yet you always go shopping in a residence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, I love 21st century life. You know, I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want any of those products or those things to be absent from my life. I kind of, you know, I see all the good as well as the bad. But if every machine produced one T-shirt. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> We'd all have really special T-shirts. <laughs> it's that, I suppose it's that constant relationship between the one individual that we all are and this mass thing but that mass thing's only made by individuals it's not that different but we perceive it as this thing that's out there and untouchable and not us but it is us I like the idea of a covert project where you just get people up and down the country to open the door yes. in a warehouse <laughs> in a big machine let warehouse air let that air in <laughs> I think we should see your film yeah um I don't know what to say about it, really. This is the piece that, that that caused Becky and I to meet. I'm a filmmaker and an artist, and I don't settle very easily on one or other of those terms. I think I probably most commonly refer to myself as a filmmaker, but I'm trained as an artist. Um, and in the past, I've tended to work in a more narrative form, I think is fair to say. And So I've made experimental narratives, and I've also made documentaries, and I was always interested in sort of minority subject matter and uh, and and getting away from kind of television standards of documentary representation. I've always been about criticising those kinds of forms. But I've started to work in a much looser way, and this is when we've come to know each other, I think, is, is when I've, I've effectively picked up the vernacular or the idiom of, of moving image production in terms of how documentaries work and how work, artists' moving image works in the gallery and how documentaries function. And then I've, I've, I've sort of used those against themselves in, in, a, in a way a bit like that your huge machine printing one T-shirt. So I've, I've actually kind of tried to use cinema as a stranger to it somehow. So I've got it in my rucksack and I'm carrying it with me and I know what it does, but, but somehow I try to put myself in a situation where I've forgotten. Um, and I think this, is, this piece was at the very beginnings of that because uh, it's a collaborative piece that Anya and I did uh, where we pretended to be from the BBC uh, and to, uh, went to this uh, town in Lithuania called Elitus uh, to make a documentary about an independent art school for teenagers. Um, but we didn't really bother to be very convincing about pretending to be from the BBC. Um, <laughs> And what was fascinating was we had already built up a dialogue with Ridas Dirish, who's the head teacher of the school. And the school has something of a history. It's been used as a place for political meetings over many decades. And the school has a very strong spirit of independence. Students go to the school to do art classes, but the art classes aren't really delivered in the way that they would be in any other school. And they choose to spend time there after the classes are finished, which is not what most people do with school. So we were struck by that, but um, we proposed to make this kind of performative documentary. But when we, after we booked our flights, we learned that the week we were going to be there, the school was closed for a holiday, um, which was perfect because we got Redas to send letters to all of the children's parents saying, "The BBC are coming here to make a film. Shit, you know, do you mind if you come in and pretend to be students while they're here?" And I'll get the staff to come in and pretend to be staff. And they didn't know that we were pretending to be the BBC. (laughs) (laughs) So everybody's performing this kind of, um, this idea of of what media is, what representation is, what education is. 
but nobody really believes in each other's performances. But we're still playing. So the result is this uh, fictitious school, uh, which ended up being pretty much like what the school is anyway. But um, we gave, and this is something that interests me greatly, and I think this is some further confederacy that we have. I'm interested now in filmmaking as a site. So I'm not that interested in the finished film. Although I do tend to finish them. Some, some of them I don't. Um, but I'm interested in the ways in which people are performing difference to themselves because of this mediating presence. Uh, and how when you arrive with cameras it gives people license to sort of re-address the things that they do and the way that they function. So this was very much, uh, I suppose, in the spirit of the carnival in, in that sense because uh, we had a very good time and we bent all of the rules of the game. Uh, and this is the result. So I'll show you a clip. It's called Different Systems of Chaos. And it's 27 minutes long. Can we take these lights off? Yeah. This is just uh, an extract. Um, I can't remember exactly where I queued it up, but I think it's around the point where the head teacher of the school is teaching the students how to be administrators. Go. Oh, sorry. Well remembered. Ты посрочнее, да? Мы их не забыли попросить, дырят их. 
That blue, that blue stamp is very useful for us. So, um, so uh, from performing this kind of space, it turned into a very active collaboration between Anya, Lewin and myself, the, the staff of the school, the director of the school, Rudess Dirish, and the students um, from 12 to 18 years old. And they invented classes, we invented classes. They, they wanted Redas to teach them how to be a, the head teacher of a school, and that's where that's 12 year old students being taught how to administrate. We had telepathic drawing classes, we had life drawing classes with gas masks because the school had been issued with a decree to, issue, to give gas masks to all of the students. This is like from the Ministry of Education. All kinds of strange pressures on the school to be closed down that we were dealing with at the same time. Uh, and in actual fact, the film has been really useful for the school because the local authority wanted to close it down and they screened this and we, we were very active in writing letters to the national newspapers and it's still under threat but it hasn't closed yet. Um, yeah, so that's... And there's something very inspiring about the way in, where, in which he delivers education or he basically creates a very open space for the students to to access their creativity through very different means and we just hitchhiked off the back of that to be honest because it was already going on there in fact the opening sequence you saw the girl throw this rock against this this is a performance art piece from a 15 year old you know it was stunning she'd been working with her hair cutting her hair for a period of months and pressing it between glass and then smashing the glass with rocks so we just saw this piece that was happening and recorded it. So there's already kind of extraordinary things going on. And we just came in and, and, uh, and used our presence and used the presence of the cameras to, to enhance it or draw it out a little bit more. But then what, why is it not... Why didn't you just document it? I mean, apart from the kind of practical reality of, of going and it not being open, what made you decide to we invite just took them that to fictionalise themselves? We took that as a cue because... It was a genuine mistake that the school was closed. And I'm a firm proponent of this idea that a failure is just a gift, yeah. depending on how you look at it. So yeah, we knew the there was going to be self-consciousness because it, the school wasn't going to function the way that it ordinarily did. Not, not all of the students yeah. were there, not all of the staff were there. So it was already a counterfeit. And we felt that we should explore that. And um, so you know, we had our own sense of humour and our own things that we wanted to see happen in the school because we, we were also like the students. We saw it as a blank canvas. And then they come in and sometimes uh, these kids were organising like hip-hop kind of like um, slams in the foyer because they, you know, they would just like do it and the teachers could. wouldn't stop them. So we felt like we should do something. In their spirit. And this is something that I'm very interested in is... Um, not disinventing myself from that process and uh, you know I think a different documentary filmmaker would have thought this is gold as a subject mm -hmm. I just have to in the sort of verite tradition I just have to point and shoot mm -hmm. and they would have got a different kind of film but I, I, I don't want to miss out on the fun yeah. you know like I see myself as firmly a, a, an antagonistic and a kind of um, a, a force of change within that just as everybody else is I don't want to pretend I'm not there so, so we just thought the fact that the school was closed was an opportunity to, to be as outlandish as we possibly could. But is there some sense, you know, just like you asked me about, about cynicism, you know, the school doesn't sound cynical at all, it sounds amazing, but then in asking them to act out what they think might be expected of certain roles or certain, of an art school even, isn't there a danger that it becomes cynical? I don't think so, because they just were too busy taking it on themselves you know and uh, we just were outnumbered 
you know, we couldn't have really disciplined that. So I mean, there's that thing about control that you're not you're not scripting the film here. Are no, you? it's not. You and we had a control. second unit camera that we were going to use. Arnim was going to operate, and we ended up giving it over to some of the kids to go off and shoot interviews. And that was their suggestion, so they were taking it on. You know, and a whole ruse of we're pretending to be the BBC, you're pretending to be students, just broke down within a couple of days, and we didn't do anything to protect it because something else was happening. But that's, you, know? you know, we talked on the train, <coughs> excuse me, about risk, and so you know, there's a huge risk that that you know, how much can you let go of con- of any control and be certain there's a work in there? I think fully. I think Arnie and I had conflict about that because she was actually, and I think this is a positive thing to say about her, but she was sort of like heavily analysing everything we were doing every day and she couldn't get off message at all. We would go to a bar at the end of a shooting day and she'd be saying, that was no good, we've got to use this. And I just felt like um, I had to just roll down the chute and see where it deposited me. Uh, But I, I think that struck a balance because she was keeping half an eye on do we actually have a film here? I wasn't. I'd let take my eye off that ball completely. And I have been doing that in subsequent films. Maybe I could show you another clip, but I've you actually got the film. Yeah, I do. I don't know how easy it is because I don't have the remote. But um, I've been doing these residencies. It's quite similar to you actually. I did a residency in Bridport where it was Arts Council funded again, so there's this sense of do I come up with a result? But I did this project which was um, essentially a drift or a derive um, where I, I proposed to be a filmmaker in a small town that I had no knowledge of, I didn't know anybody there, uh, I had enough money to go and to rent out a little room for six weeks and I proposed to wander about and, uh, and whomever I met if they would take an interest in me would let them determine what the film was that I was making um, and I did little sort of things where I would sometimes sit with a clapperboard in this kind of like tragic kind of filmmaker without a film. I haven't got any acting. Yeah, and I did all these sort of like I'd sometimes mark positions on the on the street uh, with this idea that if I perform cinema, it will happen, you know, in this sort of almost kind of ritualistic kind of way. And I met lots of people that oh, I've got a great location for you, or you know, oh my kid would be great in your film, and people drove me to the into the hills to the sea I met the mayor and I met all kinds of I met this guy that runs a local dance academy that used to be a cinema so it's like building a film from the wrong way around yeah literally and they'd always say so what do you want to film and I would say it doesn't matter (laughs) you know in fact Simon Poulter who's come up in conversation had said that I was exercising a new form of slackness where (laughs) he actually didn't believe that I had any intention of recording anything at all and I think it was at one point, it did seem like it was going to be, I forget the exact term you, you use, but social, the, the, your practice is a so, sort of social agency, so to speak. Where, and I think that for a while, I did think that the film was an idea in the minds of whomever I met. Because it, this is what I found was that everybody has a literacy of like television, cinema, even moving image art. And so if you say, I'm here to make a film, they will form very quickly assumptions about what your agenda is, what, how you might be reflecting them, how they might fit into that or not want to. They very quickly arrive at an image of what that film, of what that film is. And so in a way, you start, you start this kind of oral generative process of... And I got in the local newspaper and all this kind of... You know, filmmaker is in town doesn't know what the film is yet and so it became this and people would come up to me on the street and say how's the film going because it was a, the right size so it's a of context film. yeah uh, and for a while I did think well there it is it's a, it's a kind of um, it's, a, a it's a whisper piece it's, a, it's, a, it's other people are thinking oh, I wonder how that film's going but um, I did actually happen to meet two people well, I, met, met, I met six people who wanted to commit to the project and actually wanted to collaborate with me and make a film. And for various reasons, they pulled out, but one became ill. And I ended up with two people. But I should say that um, the camera that I used, the film stock was found in an out-of-date film stock that was found in a fridge in a camera shop at the end of the high street. The person that recorded the film, because a lot of it was shot on 16mm, had never shot film before. He'd only been a stills photographer and always had an interest. The person that recorded sound 
was a student that I met, but she'd never recorded sound before. So we were like this um, sort of like ragtag assemblage of like, it's a bit like um, some kind of cut out, like if you had a camera in a, in a, in a book that, you know, cut around and joined tab A to touch tab B, that's the kind of like how convincing we were. So somehow it was about sort of pouring this idea of this film away. So is it like you completely test, you're like pushing the control that you may have as an author to the absolute limit, to the point where it... Yeah, although, and I don't know if I've ever found a way of fully articulating this, but I never saw it as a community arts piece or a public art piece. I didn't see it about access or about me being... Um, you know, training people to go off and make films without me. It's absolutely not that at all. I think I'm still very present. Um, in fact, I think my, the greatest presence I have is in the fact that I did finish a film and I edited it. And that was because the people that I met said, especially the two men who do hill walking, um, and don't, they're unemployed, they, they tend to an allotment and they hill walk, and that's how they spend all of their time, said the idea of sitting in a room editing sounded horrible. So they just said, you do that. Yeah. In fact, Roy said, I've been talking so much in front of your camera, I think you should have a turn, go off and edit it yourself. So I am present. But you talk about them, and you said that you went hill walking, and that, that you were talking about you know, how you walk down Scree and, and Shale, and that you have to keep to the pace of the slipping, yeah. slipping environment. Yeah. And that, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem by chance that it's those, it's those men and it's that environment, because... It, no, but I think about the, the thing is, that what it is to, to, I mean, we, to kind of hold something as a form, as as a work. I think and what that I think is. it's all about conviction, and I think everybody in this room knows about that from where, whatever kind of like challenging experiences they've gone through. If you have the conviction to sort of stay with it when it looks like a piece of crap, yeah. basically when all of everybody around you is sort of staring blankly, yeah. thinking, "What are you doing?" Like you don't know what you're doing. And, and being able to sort of sit in that space and know yes. that it that it's when everything is bad yes. that something happens. Totally. And yeah. in fact, I did another film. And it film. has to get as bad as it can get. It to does. The where, where your funders, your commissioners, people, your friends are kind of thinking, oh, it's really fucked up now. And you, I think that's when you <laughs> talk about intuition. This is the worst piece of work. Yeah, I know. Like, uh, <laughs> well, I went back and did a third film. I'm sort of like not telling the story very well, but um, I'd made a completely different film called Of Camera, which was a highly stylized drama. And uh, somehow that Of Camera deals with people in a film that are dealing with the fact that they're in a film, but it's a highly stylized experimental drama. The film, which is this Bridport film, they called it the film, by the way, because all the people I met said, oh, where should we, what should we do on the film tomorrow? So the title came, was also a part of the process is about a, ostensibly a factual film about people dealing with the fact that they're in a film. So these two films seem to have a sort of like some kind of connection. So I, I stupidly in that little moment of intuition we think I'm going to copy that object. I don't care what people think. I decided I to get to. the performers from the first film to, to be in a film with the men from the second film. In a third film I thought I'll just put them together on the screen and see what happens. But then doesn't that, does that demand a lot? Of, <laughs> it should be, shouldn't it? But does that demand a lot of your viewer? You know, and we talked a lot about the, con- you know, the context of the work that we make and how it's disseminated. Um, because, because that's asking a lot for someone to know that these are the people from the other film, isn't it? It is. And that third piece can only really play after having seen the other two yeah. but I think it is the most interesting and compelling of the three and we don't have time to go into why but something the whole film project fell apart and at one point this crew member said if this was a student film I'd have walked out on you right now and it was really quite upsetting at points you know uh, and yet it, what happened was the film collapsed and then they took on this sense of responsibility for it and started setting up shots and set, made, they actually made me wait in the car once with the equipment and they went off and set up a shot without me because they felt like we've, we've been here this long we ought to do something good so they're saving your neck yeah, but a lot of sense of rescue and salvage yeah. and then I've been doing this thing with all of these films where I save for the last 
day a 400-foot magazine of 16mm film, which for those of you who don't know is about 10 minutes duration. And I've said, this is for everybody. It's a bit like having a bottle of champagne or something, or, you know, it's, uh, or, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of free space at the end of a difficult time. And, uh, and I sort of like point the camera anywhere and set it off. And it's up to anybody what they do with it. And something extraordinary happened in those 10 minutes. And I know it only happened because we'd gone through this kind of baptism of fire. And I didn't know it was going to happen. But I know that, and I don't think I can keep self-consciously doing that because now oh, I'll no. know that I'm... Oh, you're the person who does that. Yeah. So it's very difficult to keep, you know, yeah. I think you have to move on from these processes. Yeah. Because I didn't know quite how bad this film was going to be and didn't know quite how good that moment was going to be. And now I'd just be like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, like trying to repeat it. You yeah, know? which is wrong. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a paradox because you can't really court serendipity. No, no, and you can't court you problems. Can't. And that, that becomes... I, I did a work a while ago in the university where everything went wrong and my I sort of responded in a particular way and in the end it, it worked right. but then, then you start to get a reputation of, in a small way for being the person who can only work to, in fucked up situations and I've had people say to me well what if you went to a perfect situation surely don't you want a perfect situation doesn't everyone want enough money and people who want to be in your projects and it's a really important question because you know are, are you the doom monger who's just looking for things that are wrong <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm looking for Personally, I'm looking for a particular space where, because I think that there's something particular to me about filmmaking, where you, to some extent, suspend your identity and your personal history for the sake of a virtual thing, which is the film which isn't here. Who suspends? The you crew and the cast are the people that have decided to give up their time. Um, so let's say uh, the subjects and the crew of a documentary or the performers and the crew of a fiction film or uh, it's not so it doesn't work quite in the same way for me if I'm doing sort of like single channel artist pieces where I'm the only person recording but if I'm in a group environment with a group of people that have said we're all going to make this film and we're giving up our five days starting now I think you're in a state of suspension mm. where something about the trajectory of your, the way in which you conduct yourself socially, the power relations change. There's certainly power relations still there, but they yeah. change. And it's all with the intention of heading towards this thing which everybody has decided is the film that we're making. And everybody's got it in their head. It's not like a musician. You're not jamming. You can't hear it. It's not present. Everybody has different investment in what that thing is. And I think that that is, for me, a bit like this room it's a social context for performing difference. But that, that, that situation you described is a collaboration. But there are films that you made that, that I'd say aren't, in that, I can't remember the name of it, but there's a film where you, you, you set up um, a film set on a bus stop. Now, that was those, a performance piece. But, right, okay, because those people haven't agreed, have they, to be represented in that way? No, I did this, this, this project where I set up big film lights in public spaces like in a tram stop in Zagreb and a bus stop in Belfast and um, everybody that came to stand at the bus stop um, the, the lights would come on and I would mark their positions with tape um, and then it, well in, um, in Belfast a car would pass the bus stop and draw up in front of it it wouldn't pass it would draw up in front of it and it would play some kind of cinematic score from its stereo for about 30 seconds and then it would pull away so there's this kind of idea of, of, of drafting members of the public into a, a, a sort of cinematic discourse. And many people thought that, that they should stand aside because the actor wasn't here yet, or they looked for the camera. Other people entered into the spirit of it, and this one woman kept sort of like she was voguing, this old woman was like <laughs> really playing up to the camera. And, and, uh, and at the end of it, uh, after a three-hour period, you have some hundred marks that show... The, the use of that space through the framework of cinema but cinema to me is just a means you know it's my chosen format so does that work exist in any other form no it's, no it, it was a live a live work yeah and uh, it was very important to me that you couldn't see any cameras mm -hmm. so again right. it comes into so, that whole thing so of I like documentation it. no there were no video cameras no film cameras present <laughs> it's an idea yeah cinema is the idea of, it's just one way in which we represent and reflect the nature of our 
of our lived world and I'm interested in how people sort of think about that rethink themselves through the framework of their mediation it's funny with that work though because it's it's really sophisticated and it's really smart but it's really emotive the idea because it just taps into this you know you walk in through the tube and you hear some music and you feel like you're in a film and it changes the way you walk and it's such a simple like childish thing that we all do that we imagine ourselves in our own film it's part of our kind of cultural imaginary space there are ways in which you can think about yourself through uh, a filter of cinema through a lens that looks at you yeah Previously, a more dominant form might have been a literary kind mm-hmm. of mode. Imagine yourself in a novel. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny how we all do that, isn't it? Yeah. I think everybody does. How are we for time? Should it's just about nine o'clock, so I don't know. Did you want to show anything else? No. <laughs> Should we have a quick break? No, I didn't. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. yeah. I'm enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about any of the things you said to me. No, well, yeah. we did all this whole conversation on the train because we're back and haven't seen each other for such a long time, really. We've seen each other once at the British Library, but we both had babies. So um, I didn't physically, but. Um, so we sort of had this whole conversation, but we did touch on risk and failure and, yeah. and those yeah, kinds we of did. things. But we also talked about um, education because we talked a lot about PhDs and whether artists should do them. Yeah. And, and education and, and which does tap really into this idea of like at what point do you declare this as significant research or when is it published yeah you know especially with these things when that are interventions yes yeah. can they be published should they be yeah. published what form do they exist in and, yeah and you know there's that whole question of well, why do you want them to exist but you do because and I think this is part of a research culture or the language of it in that you want to make a contribution Right. You know, you want to add your, and I really do think about the work I make as a contribution to knowledge, even though that knowledge might not be defined in an intellectual form or an academic form. But then it's finding how do you articulate your work as a contribution to knowledge? Yeah. And that isn't generally how contributing to an art um, trajectory. This is the theme. RAE. But, but above and beyond the RAE, because you know it's not a sort of thing I have to deal with, but. Just, you know, I see what I do as a contribution to knowledge, and yet it doesn't exist in any form like knowledge would, necessarily. Yeah, the RAE just kind of pigeons, it's so yeah. narrow, their idea of what knowledge can but be. But it's very narrow, their idea of what art is. It's 300 yeah. words, in a sense. No, absolutely, I just think it's impossible. I, I do, yeah. I think it's wrong. <laughs> but even in, you know, if, you, if you're not even part of that academic kind of thing, if the work's not going to be outputted or talked about in that way, if you make work that you think about in those terms where does it go because it isn't always going to be thought about in that way through an art market of any kind because that's not always how we think about art mm. so it's like you know we've sort of speculated at length about how you build your own context for so people see it in the way you do <laughs> yeah I mean that's the difficult thing I think and I think that's the maybe this is a longer conversation but I think that is one of the dangers of these practice and theory research culture that we're going yeah. into because um, I, certainly most curators and most contemporary galleries are not interested in that idiom they, you, know, you, you go to a curator and say I've just got my PhD, they're not going to be interested yeah. they really aren't you know? and, uh, and I think that's the problem and I think that sometimes you can end up making um, very academic work or you can end up um, trying to mimic what you think is cultural philosophy, cultural theory in your writing and then making work which is very exciting as research but doesn't have a home and you can end up moaning about it not having a home but I think that it's more it's more interesting to think of its home as being in the space of the research and that's where it's actually very active and it does uh, provoke questions with anybody that encounters the work much more so than if you took that object to a gallery and had a written statement about the history yeah. of that object. But it's it, had, it takes away <laughs> its agency, I think. But can you have that agency without... Because I've got so many kind of problems with what... Not yours, but what does get produced as art PhDs. Yeah. I see so many that I think are absolutely a waste of time. And that... Well, maybe not but they're under pressure from their institutions to get a PhD, to up their research ratings. Absolutely. A lot of people are. And or I to get a teaching job full stop. Yeah. No, I know. Or and I think that culture has to be questioned because I think it... Um, it sometimes forces people to to push their work into a particular frame that they don't want it to go into. 
you know, and I think that it's quite hard. You have to be very, very strong when you do a PhD to make the ask the right questions, to do a method, to find a methodology which actually is is relevant to what you do, rather than relevant to what you think is a PhD culture. Yeah, I, I mean, my question is still how do you, you know, can you exist between the two, really? Because I think that there's so much a value about how an art or film world works, actually, in in even though I don't like aspects of it, in actually cultivating some interesting work. Mm. And, you know, I think there's like, the, the two worlds are never the twain, and that's my problem with them. I think there's something that Ben Cook, who's a friend of mine who's mm. part of the Lux, said to me that he thinks, particularly in artist moving image work, there's a big failing in artists that use moving image because they, they're too het up in this romantic idea of, you know, just making the work. And they don't have any any concept for its exhibition. They just think, well, somebody will show it. It will show, so, you know, it, it will show in some kind of like uh, art screening festival, or it will get picked up by a distributor. That's not my problem. And in a way, this is something we learned with different systems of chaos. Is that, of course, that where the film wants to go back to is the institution. It wants to it wants to be outrageous and provocative within the space of its origin. Yeah, you know, in to, context. To, in context and to understanding. That, yeah, and that that's a way in which I think there is a solution to kind of exhibit, exhibiting research yeah. is to actually have a concept for its exhibition that is and relevant to its process. The work. Absolutely. You know, yeah. rather than think, oh there's a white cube that will show yeah, it yeah. somewhere, I just have to like yeah, smooth with the right curator. Yeah. That's a it's a very passive way of thinking about the final outcome of your yeah. work. So in a way I think that it's it's a, about collapsing those those very generic yeah. spaces of the cinema and the gallery and thinking much more about the art spaces as being everywhere. Because if yeah. we, if the art is realised everywhere, why can't it be declared everywhere? Should we just yeah, sit sorry. there for a quick break? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love a drink.